Over the past decade, science funding from the National Institutes of Health has shrunk steadily, while the number of grant applications submitted to the agency has grown. As a result, the question of which applications receive funding has been the subject of increasing scrutiny. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Michael Lauer, Deputy Director for Extramural Research at the National Institutes of Health. Dr. Lauer has co-authored a perspective article about peer review for grant applications at the NIH. Dr. Lauer, how have the NIH's standards changed as its budget for funding science has shrunk? Is it approving fewer applications across the board, or is it focusing more heavily on certain types of proposals? What's happening? Steve, I think it's fair to say that we are funding fewer applications across the board. Beginning at the time of the NIH doubling in the late 1990s and early 2000s, the NIH funded a greater proportion of projects that were institute-initiated But because of the increase in budget, we were still able to fund more investigator-initiated projects. What's happened over the last 10 to 15 years is that there's been a steady decline in buying power, but we're still maintaining a small but real percentage of our work going to institute-initiated projects. So that means that essentially everybody's feeling the squeeze. People who are writing investigator-initiated proposals are seeing fewer opportunities to see their projects funded. And there are also fewer opportunities for the institutes to issue their own initiatives because there are fewer monies available. As you say, the number of applications received by the NIH has roughly doubled over the past 15 years. Why do you think that's the case? What types of applications is NIH getting now that it wasn't getting before? The main thing that we're seeing is more applicants. If you think about why we might be seeing more applications, there are two possible explanations. One is that there are more people who are writing applications. And the second possibility is that you have the same number of people who are writing applications, but they're submitting more applications each. And it seems that the primary driver is that there are more applicants. Now, why is this? So a number of experts have looked into this, and it appears that one major explanation is that the doubling led to an increase in research capacity. If you think about this, this makes sense. With the doubling, more funds being available, this meant that there was a greater interest in training graduate students and postdocs who have now gone on to develop an interest in having laboratories of their own. The major explanation is, is that there are more applicants. We've seen more graduate students, more postdocs who are interested in obtaining NIH funding. The second part is that they are each submitting more applications per applicant to some extent And part of the reason for that is that they see that we're in a very hyper-competitive environment, and so they feel pressure to submit more applications. But the primary issue here seems to be that there are more people writing applications. Do you try to split funding among institutions across fields of study, or do decisions come solely on the basis of the merit of each individual proposal? I guess the fairest answer to that is yes. The decisions that institutes make to fund grants is not as simple as what was the percentile ranking, what was the score on the grant. That obviously is a major component and arguably the most important component to determining whether or not a project gets funded. But there are other factors as well. The NIH holds that it is important to have a diversity of projects funded. And so institutes do take that into account and do want to make sure that their portfolios are as diverse as possible. And then there are also budgetary constraints. When an institute is faced with the choice of funding one project that might cost 3 or $4 million a year 
versus six projects that might cost half a million dollars a year each, the, the Institute has to make a decision as to whether or not that one project is so high priority that it is appropriate to fund that instead of the six less expensive projects. And these are the kinds of decisions that are going on all the time. Another major factor is that NIH wants to nurture the next generation of scientists. And so a number of institutes will give, you might say, handicaps to early-stage investigators. At my former institute, the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute, early-stage investigators get a 10-point advantage. So if the official pay line is at the 12th percentile, an early-stage investigator can get funded more or less automatically up to the 22nd percentile. This is another example of how we build in a priority, in this case, fostering the next generation of researchers into our funding decisions. And then looking at how you evaluate decisions, you talk in your article about the lack of gold standards for assessing peer review and scientific impact. So how does the NIH judge whether it's funding the right projects? Well, this, of course, is exactly the question that we are struggling with. And I think it's fair to say that, as you say, there is no gold standard. It's not like if you want to know how well your transplant program is working, you measure your patient's mortality rates as well as their rates of maintaining their organs without having to be hospitalized for serious comorbidities. We unfortunately don't have anything that's quite that simple. So what we are doing is we're looking at a panoply of tools. We talk in the perspective about using publication metrics such as papers getting published, how often the papers are getting cited, are they getting cited more often than would be expected in their field. There's also been some work that's been done looking at patents, at translation. To a lesser extent, at this point, has there been work done looking at reproducibility and rigor, although that is a topic that is of great interest to us. So I think what's fair to say is that we, as well as other people in the external community who are interested in this, are thinking very hard about measuring the impact of the research that we fund, using those kinds of measurements to help us make data-driven decisions, and recognizing that this is a very difficult task to undertake. So looking specifically at citations, you say in your article that the number of citations is not strongly correlated with the peer review scores on the grant applications. But you say that that may mean that peer review is letting you fund innovative but risky projects. What kinds of risks are you thinking of? What, what kinds of risks is NIH taking? A risk would be that we fund the project and nothing comes out of it. It turns out that the hypothesis was all wrong. And not only was it all wrong, but when the investigators went ahead and pursued their work, they weren't able to come up with anything else that was particularly interesting. And one way we could see that is that the project yields no papers, or the project might yield a few papers, but those papers never get cited or get cited exceedingly rarely. That's a risk. Now, the interesting thing about science is that most projects don't do well, or most projects will yield only a little bit of additional insights, but there will be a few projects that will be wildly successful, and those projects may yield discoveries that could change the paradigm of science, could change the nature of clinical care, and one way we might see that is that those projects might yield papers that are cited thousands or even tens of thousands of times. The fundamental problem that we have, or maybe I should say the fundamental reality that we have, 
is that we cannot predict which projects are going to be the ones that will be wildly successful. We cannot predict which ones are going to be the home run. That is a fundamental characteristic of science. So what does that mean? Well, what that means is, is that we would like to be able to fund as many projects as we can because the more projects we fund, the more likely it is that we're going to have some projects that are highly successful. Let's say that we were being extremely or excessively conservative in making decisions about which projects to fund, and we saw that every single project that we funded published some papers, and some of those papers got cited, and there were no failures whatsoever. That would suggest to us that maybe we're being too conservative, and by not allowing those projects in that wind up being failures, we're also not allowing those projects in that could have been wildly successful. You talk in your article about the possibility of anonymizing grant applications so that reviewers wouldn't know an investigator's age, career stage, sex, race. Has that been a concern at NIH? Are there data to suggest that reviewers are considering these factors in their assessments? This is a concern at NIH. A few years ago, there was a paper published by Donna Ginther in Science, which suggested that African Americans were receiving R01 awards at a lower rate than would be expected given all their other characteristics. And this is something which Francis Collins and the NIH leadership has written about, and they established a special office to look into this and to figure out how we can best make sure that the way we make our decisions are not based on characteristics like age and gender and race, but rather on funding the best possible science. And then finally, best type of science, what kinds of proposals do you think should be the highest priority for NIH right now? I think a good way of thinking about this is the kinds of proposals that we want to fund would not mean that we're looking at specific areas of science, although we are, but rather assuring that we are assembling a diverse portfolio of projects. We are making a mistake if we think that we know what the best areas of science are and putting all our money into that basket. That would represent the exact opposite of what all good investors are told to do, which is to set up a diverse portfolio and in that way spread out your risks as well as your opportunities for benefits. Now, there are certain areas, of course, that we are, as you know, that we are interested in. We are developing a precision medicine initiative, and that is going to be a project that hopefully will enable a lot of projects that will spin off from that. We're trying to do a better job of funding our clinical trials, and a lot of work has already gone on, for example, at the National Cancer Institute to do that. But I think that the key message here is is that we want to fund a diverse portfolio of high-quality projects, and it's by investing in a diverse portfolio that we maximize the likelihood that we will yield the best science for the American public. Thank you, Dr. Lauer.